Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. I've got a very long queue of questions uh, to get caught up on and I'm starting to wonder whether I should do some kind of backlog catch-up episode, you know, bonus ones or something just to lower the queue down a little bit because some of you guys have been waiting you've sent me ans questions even over a year or two ago and they're still just sitting in the queue uh as i you know kind of randomly get to them but anyway um let me know what you think about that idea <laughs> if i should do a few more of these things just to get caught up on everything i wanted to take a moment uh very quickly to thank every single one of my patreon supporters you guys are the ones who i want to make a special shout out to you guys right now because you are the ones who are actually enabling me to continue doing the work that i do i am not kidding when i say this this channel and my life and my work is a hundred percent fan funded and uh, I just want to always express my appreciation for that, okay? Because because uh, it really does make a difference, every single one of y'all. And um, I've also been wondering, and uh, maybe you all on Patreon can let me know, um, you know, should I put a produced by, uh, you know, list of my Patreon supporters at the end of my shows or something? That wouldn't really be... Uh, it's super difficult for me to figure out how to do, but I've always wondered how should I validate this? And I would love to hear from you guys in the comments as to what you think might be good ideas on that line. Because I certainly, of course, want to encourage uh, more Patreon supporters and more help for the channel. All right. So um, that kind of, you know, uh, bookkeeping or whatever <laughs> uh, being done, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Jesse Davis, I remember during my short experience with Scientology that emails are called telexes. The reason was because that was the technology that was used during the time when Hubbard ran things. I was wondering if it took Scientology a long time to convert over to email or if they made the switch the moment email became popular. If they did delay the process, did they do so for fear of violating the KSW principle? If this is indeed the case, how did Miscavige justify violating the KSW principle for this instance? Do you know of any other outdated practices slash technology that Scientology uses because they're resistant to change? Thank you very much for this question, Jesse. And I have addressed the whole email telex thing before, but I'm taking this up again because as my education and time and experience and everything move forward, I see these questions differently and I thought I might approach it from a different angle this time. And specifically, the sort of... I was in Scientology management when they did switch over from a uh, sort of internal uh, old school computer system that was really a mainframe workstation setup to um, PCs, you know, pr uh, personal computers, and um, and then switched the telex system over from this really old telex system, which was this. Uh, developed back in the 50s and 60s, if I remember right, Hubbard was saying it was all state-of-the-art when he adopted it at St. Hill and for the Scientology Network back in the 1960s uh, in order to enable instant communication uh, across continents, you know, using phone lines as I understand it. So that system was not updated until the 2000s, if I remember right. Um, and... Um, 
Yeah, one of the reasons, the thing I wanted to comment about it, though, is there's this this anachronistic snapshot of Scientology as 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 described in its policies, telexes, using, uh, this might not sound anachronistic to some of you, but using newspapers to clean windows. I, I mean, you know, where do you get newspapers anymore, <laughs> right? But this is policy in Scientology that the best way to clean windows is to use old crumpled up newspapers, wet and dry, and and clean the windows that way. And sure enough, it works, but there are other ways of cleaning windows now. Um, and yet they're kind of loath to go there because Hubbard wrote specific policies during directives uh, on these things. Um, you know, he wrote a whole thing about television and how, to, how bad television was and how he didn't want Sea Org members watching soap operas and TV because they got distracted and their attention got, uh, you know, what's going to happen to Marge this week, you know, and they weren't thinking about their job. And Hubbard wanted these people focused 100% on their work. He didn't want them distracted and having fun and doing other things than their work. Uh, unless it was Hubbard approved, it wasn't really approved at all. And so you see these anachronisms and these old ways of doing things all throughout Scientology's policies. And, of course, they can't exactly update them to change the word telex to email. Uh, I mean, they could, and Miscavige actually could get away with it, which gets to my next point. You wait. As a person in mental management of Scientology who was well aware of, of, of computers and programming and, and technology, because that's what I grew up with, I went into the Sea Org and was shocked at some of the, you know, these old school ways of doing things. And I was um, a person who actually brought computers and, and personal computers and a server and a whole setup into the man, middle management offices. We had these old workstation setups, and I brought um, donated, I arranged for a server and, and for uh, PCs to be brought in and uh, basically updated the, the, the management unit and designed and wrote the software to run it. I, I did that, and that was just something I had a lot of fun doing as I needed some kind of outlet for my creativity, and that became it. But it speaks to the fact that it wasn't official, and I didn't, there was no official changeover from telexes to email until there was. Like, in other words, we couldn't make those kinds of decisions. Even me bringing PCs in and doing the setup that I did was questionable. I really wondered if I was going to get in trouble for this. And let me give you an example of the kind of nonsense that goes on. And I think I've told this story before, but it, it bears repeating. So one fine day in the management unit, we're sitting there and the statistics are now computerized where we've got them displayed on our screens. So the numbers come in every week and we're not even graphing them much by hand or otherwise. They're just all computerized, and we can pull them up on a computer screen, and we can look at, you know, we can change how many weeks we're looking at, and and we can compare statistics one to the other. I mean, they really did a number putting these these uh, programs together for us to be able to view the statistics. And one fine day, this person from RTC walks in, not David Miscavige, but a junior to him, and he says, he looks around and goes, where's the stat books? And we're like, well, they're on the computer, sir. We have them all right here. We can, you know, look at what we can do. And he goes, yeah, no, I don't give a shit about that. Where are the stat books? And we're now like, uh-oh, because here's somebody from RTC. This is the most senior organization in Scientology, and he's upset with us.
We're not the ones who wrote the software or did any of this. We were the beneficiaries of it. And now we're being called on the carpet because he's wondering, well, where are the stat books? And by that, he meant, where are the printed on paper stat books? Well, we hadn't been printing them because that was a fantastic waste of money in and in printer ink and paper uh, because we had them on our computer screen. Why would we need to print them? And he goes, because it's in policy that they be written down on a piece of paper. That's why, asshole, right, was his response to this question of, well, sir, we, you know, why would we do that? Because that's what the policy says. And we couldn't argue with that. That is what the policy says. We had functionally replaced this policy with statistic graphs that were on the computer, but that wasn't what the policy said, so that's not what we were allowed to do. And we could no longer, after this guy came through one night, arbitrarily telling us that we were off the rails and that we were not um, doing what Hubbard said, a whole system had to be slammed into place where all of these stat books had to be printed every week. We couldn't look, we could look at them on the computer, but that wasn't how we could do our analysis. We had to use the stat books. So this meant printing reams of paper of stats every week. There were six graphs to a page. And when you're looking at the stat graphs on paper, you can't you can't change the graph. You can't look at a longer term or a shorter term because that would change the, um, the nature of the graph. And that would be useful for us as managers to see longer term pictures and things like that. But no, 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 these must be printed on paper. And so because the policy said that, we had to go back to doing that. And this became a whole thing. It took hours of time of some of the staff in the data bureau to print all of these things and distribute these stat books around. And that's the only thing we were allowed to do. And if he came through and we weren't using the stat books, we were getting yelled and screamed at. So there's this cultural thing that goes on in Scientology and perhaps other groups where these anachronisms become embedded in stone and you have to follow along with them. And so you know, once the telex system got upgraded, and it really was basically emails with information, and, and the emails, it, here's how stupid this is, right? The, we get emails. Now we can have electronic communications back and forth with the organizations, but they had to be formatted as though they were still an old-style telex with the date code and the two and the reline and the CCs and infos and the whole format of it had to be this ridiculous all caps format like an old school telegram or telex. And we had to maintain that format in our emails, even though we easily, way more easily, could have written our communications more like letters or dispatches. Uh, but no, 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 they must be telexes. And so this old style system maintain was 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 laid over the electronic upgrades, you know? So yeah, now I'm looking at telexes on my computer screen and, but you know, uh, they always had to be printed because they're telexes and this is what the policy says, right? And so you get this kind of ridiculous enforcement of, you know, stone age methodologies uh, in these groups. And this is one of the reasons people can't, you know, they get stuck in these, in these, pits of uh, like these these uh 
moments in time where they can't ever move forward. And, and Scientology is so much that. You know, it's, it's views on morality and ethics and it's views on, on cultural standards and like, for example, the whole LGBTQ attitude in Scientology and all of that, right? It's just, it's baked in so that it can't change. And it was very frustrating even when we were in to have to deal with that. Uh, from the outside, I just see it as the most ridiculous bunch of nonsense ever. And you asked, well, why, you know, why is this it violating KSW? You know, well, yeah, it is, a, it is this fear that if I, if I show initiative and step outside the box and do something new and original, I'm somehow going to be violating policy. And sure enough, there's enough policy saying enough nonsensical things that someone can come along and slam you for showing initiative. And yet here's this other policy in Scientology that says show initiative do you know be responsible for your job create it make it yours do what needs to be done to streamline and make our make our organizations more efficient but then you proceed to do so and you get slapped for it so that's one of that's just one of the thousands of double binds that exist in Scientology and this is what these you know this is the the sort of primitive thinking and control that, that just exists in these groups is they'll just use any excuse to slap you down every chance they get. You know, that's kind of what these groups are about. And just kind of keeping you stuck in the 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 do the the busy work of it. You know, better to have you doing anachronistic Stone Age busy work than actually improving things and getting something done. That's not what they're about. You know, they're about the, you know, sticking you in amber and keeping you as a dinosaur. It's uh, at least your mind, <laughs> you know, if you, if you understand the, the reference there. So I don't know, rambled a little bit there, but I hope that uh, was a clear answer for you, Jesse. Barney Saunders. Do you consider Tom Cruise to be in a near command and control position of power within the Church of Scientology? If not, how would you define his level of power and authority and influence within the organization? All right, done a lot of shows and talks about Tom Cruise lately, but this is a you know straightforward question, so I'll give you a straightforward answer. Yes, Tom Cruise is very much in a command and control position in Scientology because he is best buds with David Miscavige and because Miscavige has reigned all levels of admiration and and glory upon Tom Cruise's head. And so Tom Cruise can do no wrong. And Scientologists just love the guy because he is one of the most, you know, he is the most successful Scientologist on the planet. And he's one of the most popular media figures on the planet. So Scientologists look to him for inspiration and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, his level of power and authority and influence within the organization is unparalleled. There really isn't any other Scientologist who holds as much power as he does, other than David Miscavige, of course, right? David is, seems to have imbued or blessed Tom Cruise with, you know, this exalted status. And that was demonstrated back in, what, 2004 with the Freedom Medal of Valor, the only Scientologist who's ever gotten that award. And... Um, and all the you know wonderful things that that are that are given to him, and so you have Tom Cruise running around in the Scientology world, living in very rarefied air. Everybody has to call him sir. Everybody has to kowtow to his every wish and desire. 
Um, if you if you don't go along with what Tom Cruise says or wants, you are absolutely, positively, without question, you are toast. Right? You will be absolutely exiled, declared, uh, beaten, whatever is necessary to get you in line if you're not following and uh, with Tom Cruise's wishes. He really is at that level as a public Scientologist. And that's, again, David Miscavige's influence. And a testament to, and, and a, the, this principle that I've been talking about lately, with Scientology and with its ethics system, which is that if you are someone who is earning for Scientology and you are loyal to David Miscavige, then the sky is the limit as to what you're going to get. And there is no bigger earner for Scientology than Tom Cruise. The man has has rained millions of dollars down on, into Scientology's coffers, and the influence that he peddles is extraordinary. And people worship at the altar of Tom Cruise, right? Lots and lots and lots of people do. And they don't care anything about the abuses or the allegations of Tom Cruise's nonsense uh, regarding Scientology. They don't care. So he's golden. He's a golden child for Scientology. And as long as he continues to be that, you know, golden calf, I guess you could say, right? Or again, bringing in the money. That's what it's all about. Then he will continue to have that exalted status. That's that's his big thing, and uh, and he and Tom Cruise loves it. He 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 soaks it all up. He is absolutely going with the flow. He is a willing and active participant in the oppression of Scientology because he loves this vaunted position that he has. He he it strokes his ego like very few other things do. And to have everybody practically worshiping him, um, you know, 24-7 in the Scientology world is, it, it just it just does nothing but, you know, feeds into his, his, his narcissism and his ego. And um, so Tom Cruise is completely with the program on this, right? Because that's what he wants. Um, he wants his ego stroked all the time. That's the personality that he is. So Scientologists are all too willing to, uh, you know, massage away. And uh, anyway, that's what I can say about that. Alex C. In the Sea Org, who was the highest level person you met with, aside from David Miscavige? What was this person like? Well, when I was in the Sea Org, the highest level, highest ranking, highest organizational person I ever interacted with other than David Miscavige was Marty Rathbun uh, back when he was in. And he was kind of a dick. You know, he was this mean-spirited guy who you knew could let loose on you at any point. And you could sort of sense it. He was like a, uh, a, a tiger. You know, he was like a lion. He was like somebody, you know, he was like... You were afraid of him. When he was around, he just gave off this vibe that he really didn't like you. And he would be willing to crush you uh, if you did not go along with what he wanted. It, everything about him kind of gave off that vibe. And, my, and, and this was all personal interactions. This wasn't, you know, via a TV screen or something. This was me, you know, talking and interacting with him. That only happened a couple times. I, was, I only saw the man a few times when I was in. But that's kind of the vibe that I got from him. And it was an interesting contrast because other people that I met from international management or even from RTC, um, 
didn't give off that same vibe. Uh, in fact, it was very interesting that most of the people that I interacted with who were high, high-level uh, international executives were really kind of nice people. They were a little intense and they were the kind of, you know, you didn't screw around and you didn't just, you know, they weren't, you weren't palling around with them. But when they came down and needed to deal with me or talk to me about some aspect of my job or post, they didn't generally yell and scream and give me a hard time and beat me or anything like that. Um, there was always a little bit of a fear factor with people from uplines, though. That's what we called it, uplines, right? People coming down from international management to, to speak with us. That's why I always use that expression of up in the rarefied air, you know, up on the mountaintop. Um, when they would come down and talk to us, uh, they were generally cordial, friendly, you know, insistent and demanding, but, but in a friendly way, not in a, not in a dick way. Um, and there were a lot of these people and, and, you know, and actually most of those people aren't in anymore. Okay. I'm talking about, uh, well, people's names, you probably wouldn't recognize, no need to go into it, but just regular, ordinary people who were at that level and had a lot of power and influence, but didn't swagger around and, and use it to abuse people because they were basically good people who were just trying to and believed in the mission of Scientology and trying to forward it, as opposed to your Marty Rathbuns and your David Miscavige's and Tom Cruise's who are all about themselves. They're, all, they're in it for themselves. And the people that I interacted with who were not that way were, were, were nice folks. So, um, and I, I rubbed elbows with uh, a few of them, you know, over the years, when, mostly when I was in management. It was interesting how the years went on and the ideal org program came out and the basics came out and these, these miscavige revisions happened. And then it seemed that the more you would interact with people who were up in that rarefied air, the more tense and anxious and upset they were. They were on hair triggers. It was, it, you were always kind of walking on, you know, tinder hooks around them. And that, that was as the years progressed and those nicer people had been disappeared or had left and you never knew what happened to them. And these new people were just always on walking on eggshells. And then, you know, that gave you the eggshell vibe. And then you were always freaking out around them and that kind of thing. So, um, so that's kind of what it was like, you know, is it was always a little bit nerve wracking, even when they were nice, because you never knew if that nice was going to turn to nasty, because sometimes people could start that way and then they could turn on a dime. Other people never went nasty. And I really, really appreciated those people. But they were unfortunately, I, you know, I said there were a lot of them, but um, I mean, I'm talking about having interacted with them. I'm, I'm thinking about maybe 10 or 15 different people right now. And out of those, I would say a third of them were in that nice category and the others were in that tense, you know, mode or as I mentioned, Marty uh, Miscavige personally, you know, these were people who were, who were, Jenny DeVock, she was a complete, she was awful. She was one of the worst human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And I've heard that she's actually a nice person. Um if she's not doing that whole ego stroking thing, but I don't believe it because I never had uh, even one decent interaction with her. She was a complete awful person. There are so many words I'm, I'm not using right now uh, that, that I, um, God, she was awful. 
So, and there were, and there were people at my level who were like that too. It wasn't just an int higher executive phenomena. There were people at middle management who were very, very much about ego stroking and power. And, you know, they, they, they had achieved a level of power or influence and they were vicious, nasty about holding on to it and using it. So, so you see that kind of thing at all levels, not just at the highest levels. Um, and as, as far as I can tell, it's really just kind of a personality type that's probably informed by an awful lot of trauma in their early life because monsters are generally made. They're not generally born that way. Um, so I don't know. That's what I can say about that. Logamug. What kind of people get selected to be members of the Office of Special Affairs, OSA? What type of skills or behaviors do they look for, and what is the process? Oh, right, OSA. So I am not totally familiar with all of the personnel requirements to go into the Office of Special Affairs because I never actually oversaw anyone going there. I just sort of saw it from the sides. There were special requirements. I know for a fact one of them was that you had to want to be there. There were only two areas in Scientology that required that you absolutely wanted to be there. And if you didn't want to be there, you weren't qualified to be there. The Office of Special Affairs was one of them. And generally, um, eight, what's called HCO, uh, the Hubbard Communications Office, which is the ethics and human resources or personnel and communications division. Those three functions of the organization were dealt with by Division One. HCO, okay, and this is Hubbard's personal office or communications office. So um, this is where they keep all the policy and tech and everything, but this is where all the communications are handled, ethics and justice and personnel. So HCO held a lot of power because they were the ones who were dealing with transferring people, demoting people, promoting people, uh, the ethics of people dealing with all the moral stuff and the rights and the wrongs and the and the justice system, all of that was contained there. So, uh, so HCO had a lot of power and you had to want to be there. Same with OSA. Um, as far as I can tell, and I say this somewhat jokingly, but not really, you had to have shark eyes, you know, these dull, emotionless, lifeless kind of, I will kill you and eat you and consume you. And I won't give a second thought to it. That kind of attitude, that kind of approach to dealing with people is is kind of mandatory in OSA. But I don't know how that's written down as a requirement. I just know that that was a common thing in OSA is you would see people who really had the humanity kind of beaten out of them if it was ever there in the first place. And there are and there are both. Um, I saw I saw examples of both there. Right. I saw people who I knew used to be good, nice people and Scientology had basically radicalized them. And a lot of the indoctrination and, and uh, training that the Office of Special Affairs personnel receive does indoctrinate them into deep levels of conspiracy thinking and deep levels of paranoia because the OSA are the ones who are absolutely convinced as part of their job that every government in the world and all of psychiatry and all of big pharma and all the big money and everything are all in this sort of array of this conspiracy against Scientology. And not just against 
mental health or self-improvement, but against Scientology specifically. You know, Hubbard talks endlessly about how the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and and these families, and oh yeah, there's all kinds of anti-Semitism sort of under the surface of that, but... Um, but it's really about, you know, who holds the reins of power on the planet. And Hubbard was very jealous of people who had a lot of money and power and would badmouth them and claim that they were conspiring against Scientology and against him personally because he was the founder and discoverer and source of all of this greatness that they were trying to suppress and, and, and drive out of existence. So the OSA staff members go all in on that point of view. Uh, so they tend to be conspiracy mongers and things like that because that's part of the job. And, uh, of course, OSA is the Dirty Tricks Bureau of Scientology. So in order to get somebody to a place where they're willing to and feel it's actually necessary to go stalk somebody, harass, spy on people, go through their trash, follow them around, badmouth them to their neighbors, talk, uh, you know, arrange things in their life so that they lose their job, lose their spouse, lose their kids. I mean, this is the daily work of the Office of Special Affairs. So, you know, you're going to want somebody going in there who is going to be trustworthy and who you're going to count on to be loyal. So they're going to have to prove their worth before they're even going to be considered for the job. Those are all very, very important points. And, um, and that's how I know people get, you know, how people get selected for that that group and basically what they're what they're looking for. Now, in terms of the process, uh, it pretty much follows standard personnel processes for Scientology, which involves security checks, confessionals. If you're going to get qualified to go or be promoted to a sensitive area or a high level area, then you're going to get used to answering an awful lot of personally invasive questions about your life and your past and your history and your sexual proclivities and whether you're, you know, somebody who's done drugs and why did you do drugs and what are all the drugs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Your, your back history is going to be examined up one side and down the other. And to the degree that you are, um, you know, transparent and, and contrite and all that and go along with the program and, and jump through all the loyalty hoops, uh, that's how you get approved for these upper level sensitive positions. Uh, but there's an awful lot of those confessionals uh, happening to get you there because because um, they trust the e-meter and they think the e-meter speaks the truth. And so if they think if they've sec checked you and and uh, tested you and all of that, that you're going to be worthy. And uh, anyway, that's uh, that's kind of how that works. Jay Moore, what is the point of the harsh conditions for Sea Org members? Is it institutional culture, as in, it's always been this way, why change? Or is it a cost-saving measure, a control mechanism, sadism? It seems to me that they would have an easier time recruiting and keeping Sea Org members by making very minor changes, such as better food, more time to get up the bridge, better health care, a retirement home for elderly members, etc. Sure, it would cost more, but they have the money, and it seems like even a marginal investment to the Sea Org budget would have significant dividends in worker production, retention, etc. Hell, that could even be a new fundraising campaign. Fund the Sea Org Foundation. As it is, it seems like the Sea Org and its conditions are actually creating many of the church's most vocal detractors. Well, you're absolutely right. The conditions are gruesome and awful, and that does create detractors such as myself. 
And we have been speaking out about this for quite some time because of the abuses that are rained down on Sea Org members. Now, could there be changes? Of course there could. Um, but the Sea Org themselves, and I wanted to comment on this. That's why I took this question up. The Sea Org members themselves are so beaten down and are so oppressed and have normalized that oppression that they almost refuse or reject improvements. And not and it's not like improvements are coming down the line 24-7, but let me tell you a story that give you an example of what I mean. One fine day, we get it called in for a base briefing at, in Los Angeles, and we are um, being told by a very high-level executive that the uh, superpower project, and this was back years ago before it had been opened up or released, um, the the superpower project required personnel. And they were looking for, you know, the best of the best kind of thing, people who wanted to go to flag in Clearwater, train up on this special program and become superpower auditors. And they showed us slides of the living quarters and the living conditions that the people who were going to go for training were going to have. And they had created, in Clearwater, apartments for Sea Org members where there were two at a time, there was a kitchenette, there was a little living space. These were nicely set up spaces. They were carpeted. There was tile. This was a really normal-looking place to live. We watched this slideshow knowing that we were sitting in the, in the base briefing space, which is the main mess where we all eat. That was the space we used to have our briefings. One story up, two stories up, three stories up were our living quarters. They were shitholes. There were people stacked in beds four high. There was laundry hanging everywhere. There were It was just smelly, dirty, disgusting conditions. This was an old hospital facility, and we were in these hospital rooms. And these were the dorms that these people were living in. And they were so normalized to these degraded, disgusting living conditions that when shown a, a normal, not, you know, for, for, for us, it looked like royalty. I mean, to show us these normal living conditions and say, well, this is what we're giving to the people who go for this program and do this training. This is what it's going to be like living at Flag and working there is you're going to have these nice quarters and beautiful places to live and, and, and work. And, and, you know, and isn't this all going to be beautiful? The audience in Los Angeles of Sea Org members watching this were so, this was so unreal to them that they could have this, that there was open tittering and like snarky comments being whispered all throughout the hall, rejecting the very idea that this could be something we could actually have. We had been so oppressed for so long that the very idea of having something better was so ridiculous to us that we couldn't accept it. I remember sitting in that audience and thinking to myself, oh, come on. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, right. Like any Sea Org member is going to be allowed to live that way. And I wasn't thinking it from the point of view of we weren't allowed as though how do I explain this? This is really hard to explain. 
it was, you know, like somehow in my mind, let me say this, somehow in my mind, the organization, Miscavige, the people who were in charge of this stuff, were still blameless for this situation. I wasn't thinking because Miscavige or the finance people or the money, you know, I wasn't blaming the organization for this. And yet, at the same time, I was so resentful and upset and convinced that I could never have a quality of life better than what I had, that I resented the mere idea, the suggestion that there was some place in the world where Sea Org members could live that way. It was just so unreal to me. It was like, it was like, I don't know what it was like. I, I, I my analogies escape me here, but I, what, what we as a group rejected this entire thing. I think people were actually, if I remember this right, people were openly laughing at this briefing. Um, and to the point that the speaker was taken aback. She was an older woman, this veteran Sea Org member. Clearly, a lot of money and time had been put into this idea and this briefing, and she was very serious about it, and she meant it, and she was sincere when she said, you know, this is what we were doing. And and she, and the audience reaction was so not what she was expecting that she was like, "What what is up with you guys? Like, wait a minute. Are you not, like like, this is real? And people were just, and she was like, Oh, I see. We've got some handling to do here. And there was a little tiny spark, just a little tiny spark of hope in the back of my mind that maybe she was going to do something. She had enough power and influence that she could possibly make the conditions here in L.A. better. And just the tiniest little glimmer of hope in the back of my mind that maybe she was going to talk to the right people and somehow do something different and make this better for us. And she didn't. Whatever she did, it made no change whatsoever in our living conditions and our quarters and our environment. We had shithole apartments the entire time that I was there. And the living conditions in the Sea Org were degraded and they were awful. And um, and we were just, like I said, we were so normalized to it that we couldn't believe it could get better. And when you have an entire group of people, I guess I wanted to comment on this because I wanted to say in response to your question, Jay, that, that you can make things so bad for people and convince them that this is what they deserve. This is all they get because this is all they deserve to get. And then the group itself rejects any improvement or change to make things better. You wouldn't believe it. It doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't sound logical or reasonable at all. But I lived it. So I know it's possible. And, I, and I'm sure some of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, that's, that was the situation there. Now, if, you know, all of this could change tomorrow, easily it could change. If David Miscavige wanted it to. All he would have to do is say a few things to a couple of the right people who hold the purse strings of Scientology, and money could rain down on every Sea Org base, 
and they could be renovated and the Sea Org members could live a life that was normal. You know, they could change the schedule, they could adjust the study, they could adjust the money, they could adjust the income that the Sea Org members make because they're still, as far as I know, doing $50 a week. You know, all of this could change on a dime. And the Sea Org would be falling all over themselves in gratitude to David Miscavige if he did that. But he doesn't see it that way. L. Ron Hubbard didn't see it that way either, right? These are, the, when you ask, you know, why is it this way? And you list it out, you know, has it always been this way? Is it a cost-saving measure, control, sadism? It's all of those things rolled into one. It's David Miscavige's sadism. It is a control mechanism to keep people oppressed and feeling as though they don't deserve anything better. Because then, as the leader, you have to just dole out pennies and look at how happy they are. Give them a little $20, $50, $100 bonus for Christmas and look at, look at the smiles. Look at how happy they are. You know, if you give them a normal lifestyle... And you give them things and you get them in a frame of mind that they deserve these things, maybe they'll start asking for more. Maybe they'll make more demands and see you're losing control of them. To David Miscavige's and L. Ron Hubbard's way of thinking, you lose control of them if you're nice to them and give them things. And that's why Hubbard wrote policy after policy after policy about how staff uh, exchange works and how the exchange from the staff needs to be what he called blue diamond quality, right? It has to be this like stellar overabundance of exchange. And that's the best level of exchange. And so that's what all the staff are expected to do is bend over backwards for, you know, for, for pennies. And they do. They buy into it, right? I bought into it. And, uh, and it's all backwards. But Hubbard was clever, he was clever in the way that he wrote his policies. And when you read them and you're in, a, and you're in a, uh, a friendly state of mind about Scientology, then you believe very wrongly that these policies are there to empower you and give you, um, give you things, right? And it's just on you to earn them. And it's not that way at all. You'll never earn them, right? It's the, it, you are just pushing a boulder up a hill every single day. And then the next day, there it is at the bottom of the hill, and you got to push it up again, you know, and that's life as a Sea Org member. So anyway, rambled on a bit here, but I hope this clarified this sort of the view from inside about this, right? And I thought that might be um, useful information. I never talked about that before, so... All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry, do Sea Org members that come from wealthy families accept money from their families to subsidize their small paycheck? And if so, do the other Sea Org members get jealous? Absolutely, they do because they're human beings and because their family cares about them and sends them money and stuff. But it can't go too far out of whack. Uh, if it becomes too noticeable or there's too much money being flowed to a Sea Org member, then of course... Uh, the the you know the clamps would come down and they would be labeled the family would be labeled as a what's called an external influence in Scientology and uh, that would not be allowed so they heavily 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 discourage it and you have to report all the money that you receive from your family and stuff like that but absolutely other Sea Org members definitely get jealous about that kind of thing.
Jamie Alsacer. Have you ever heard of STOSA? It's an online platform for some basic courses for independent Scientologists. I was considering taking some, but I am skeptical of this site being a rabbit hole for regular Scientology. Do you know anything about it? Okay, thanks for asking me about this. I did not know anything about it until I looked it up uh, in uh, seeing how I would answer your question here. And indeed, it is a beautifully put-together independent Scientology website offering services for Scientology. And it's outside the church, and a lot of the courses that they do are offered online for free, and y'all can check it out if you want. It's, it's like stosa.com or something. Uh, not something I would endorse uh, doing because it's indoctrinating you into L. Ron Hubbard's belief set. And if you've been listening to this show, then you know that L. Ron Hubbard was a clever guy. And he would enslave you with the concepts that he communicates to you. So, sure, go for it. You know, but there will be negative consequences because L. Ron Hubbard was not transparent or open and he didn't want to help you. He wanted to enslave you. So, um, so this is just another, you know, uh, unfortunately, another sad example of people who can't let that, 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 let that indoctrination go to the point that they build a beautiful website and offer these services, uh, some free, some charged. Uh, so that you can continue to do uh, your Scientology enslavement outside the bounds of Scientology. There you go. Toaf, you mentioned in a previous video that some years ago the church was teasing the release of an e-meter which could register a Thetan. While it was clearly nonsense to extort more money from the membership, I'm curious if you have any information on what this e-meter was supposed to do. Yes, you are referring to a device that was never released. Uh, they showed a picture of it, and that was about it. And it was a device that was supposed to register a Thetan who was exterior to the body. So it was not a matter of holding cans and being connected to the e-meter. This was a device that would sit on a table, and the Thetan would somehow influence it. That's it. That's all I got for you. That was the entirety of the briefing on it. Uh, pretty silly, pretty stupid, uh, but that's, you know, that's Scientology for you. All right, folks, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week and uh, for listening to the show. I hope that it was educational, informative, and entertaining, as always. And as always, I will put a plug in to support the show. And I will also put a plug in for my consultancy service because that is something I am now offering to all y'all as the public at large out there is if you need help, if you need somebody who uh, can understand what a former cult experience is like, if you need somebody who you have family or friends who are stuck in a cult, you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you don't know how to deal with it, give me a call, give me a, give, send me an email, let's talk, and maybe I can help you out. That's what I do. Uh, so with that, I will end the show. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.